everyone. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. Today we're talking about translating early grade reading resources and games into Ukrainian and lessons that we can learn from the global digital library Translate a Story campaign. This week, World Bank Senior Education and Technology Policy Specialist and Global Lead for Technology and Innovation in Education, Robert Hawkins, is speaking with the Global Digital Library about their joint crowdsourcing campaign with UNESCO and UNHCR to translate early grade reading resources and games into Ukrainian. The campaign is currently recruiting translators and proofreaders to translate 200 to 300 books and games from the Global Digital Library to create new resources in a language that needs resources urgently. These resources that are translated will be available both in the Global Digital Library and on the Calibri platform. Robert Hawkins is speaking with Global Digital Library CTO, Krister Gunderson, and Curious Learning co-founder, Tinsley Gallion. Krista will explain how the Global Digital Library works, the goals of this campaign, and how its methodology combines crowdsourcing and quality assurance. He'll also speak about the outputs of the campaign and how these can be shared across multiple platforms. Global Digital Library partner Curious Learning has been leading the work of translating the literacy game Feed the Monster that just a few days ago was published in Ukrainian. Curious Learning co-founder Tinsley Gallion will share their experience translating this game into more than 50 languages. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Bob Hawkins. I'm the Global Lead for Technology and Innovation in Education at the World Bank. We are very pleased to have with us today Krister Gunderson from the Global Digital Library. He's the CTO, as well as wearing many other hats that we'll delve in today. And Tinsley Gallion, the co-founder of Curious Learning. Today, we're here to talk about uh, how to get digital content for early grade reading into the hands of Ukrainian refugees in real time. This is a fascinating initiative that is happening as we speak. The initiative is currently recruiting translators and proofreaders to translate uh, up to 300 books and games from the Global Digital Library to address uh, the the growing refugee crisis uh, in Europe. It's a fantastic example of leveraging existing content and networks to deliver language specific to educational material to displaced learners. So thanks very much to both of you for jumping into this conversation and uh, welcome. Just to kick things off, I wanted to give a bit of context around the World Bank work on uh, early grade reading and learning poverty and why this is such a critical, important uh, experience and the lessons that we draw from this will be applicable to many of the countries we work in. Um, as you're probably familiar, uh, we have uh, established a metric uh, called learning poverty that looks at the capacity of 10-year-olds to uh, read a simple paragraph. And unfortunately, before the pandemic, in many countries, uh, learning poverty was up to 50%. After the pandemic, in many countries, we're reaching 70 80%. Uh, So this is a major challenge for us at the World Bank to look at ways in which to uh, support countries to engage young people in early grade reading uh, as a foundational skill for all of the other uh, educational processes that, that, that follow. And we're constantly looking for innovation. So I'm very excited for this conversation to learn both about your past experiences with early grade reading and technology, as well as this existing initiative uh, in the Ukraine. One of the lessons that came out of of COVID um, in many of the countries we're working with 
is the need for different types of digital content, digital content that's more engaging, digital content that is in the right language, digital content that can be used, obviously in the case of COVID, outside of school. And many countries are looking at the experiences of COVID and developing hybrid learning strategies for how to create a more resilient educational system. And the use of digital content that can be used anywhere, anytime is critical for this, not just in the context that we'll be talking about today with Ukrainian refugees, but for what is emerging as a set of hybrid models in countries across the world that are looking at how to leverage digital technology to provide learning to students when they are not in the physical classroom. And I think what's important and unique about this conversation that I'm very excited to, to, to learn more about and engage with you is the unique features that we're, we're seeing with this particular application of digital content, the importance of flexibility of content and the, the possibility for expanding uh, digital content uh, learning apps as digital global public goods. So to kick off the conversation, uh, Krister, I, I want to go to you first. I know you wear many hats, but uh, and we'll, we'll pull these off as the conversation goes. But I'd like to start off asking you to share with our listeners uh, exactly what is the Global Digital Library, what is your role, what its history, and a little bit about its current usage and reach. Uh, welcome, Krister. Over to you. Thank you, and thank you for having us. Um, I think your introduction really gave a good sort of um, good scope of the discussions here today. Um, and to start off with with the Global Digital Library, it was sort of conceptualized in a collaboration with um, the Norwegian government and uh, USAID uh, in 2015-2016. Uh, and the simple idea was to draw resources um, uh, that increased learning um, within reading, and now also I'll come back to that, also math, but primarily reading, um, for underserved languages. And that, the idea was to create one platform that would harvest these openly licensed resources and make them available across platforms. Um, and that was in 2015. We started out building the platform in 2017, uh, again, in collaboration with a, a large group of partners, including USAID, UNESCO, uh, UNICEF has been involved. Uh, and of course, we also work with, with the World Bank underway. Um, and now we have 96 languages and we have 7,000 resources. And, and the platform contains two main, sort of main types of resources. One category is the government approved resources that are meant for classrooms. And then we have a large pool of resources we call library resources. And you need to think of the metaphor of going into a library and picking the book that you want to read, right? The, the, the interesting one. Uh, those are not sort of uh, instructional materials. Those are, are, are storybooks. Uh, and we have both those two categories um, um, spread across across different, uh, different um, languages. Um, and during the way, we have also started translating uh, content into new languages, especially the underserved languages, where there is no investment to create original language. So we have a platform that supports that sort of methodology. Um, that is today the Global Digital Library. And, um, and, and, and it really is, it has a few really, really what we call superpowers. And one of the superpowers is sort of has evolved into the campaign that we're talking about here today, the Translate a Story campaign um, uh, for Ukraine, where we use crowdsourcing uh, in combination with quality assurance uh, to translate new titles really rapidly into a new language. And of course, in the Ukraine case, 
it is urgent. They need it now. Um, so the technique really fits that sort of um, that that fits the uh, or it creates a model where we can do it very quickly to, to meet that urgent urgent need. Thank, thanks, Christer. I want to come back to you on a few questions that you, that you highlighted. One was this idea of having digital content once it's produced, the ability to distribute it across various platforms. I, I want to come back to that question. And the other yep. is the issue of quality and the kind of the role of the digital uh, global, global digital library in curation, in identifying what are high quality resources, what are not high quality. And this is a debate in all of our countries as to whether resources should be developed bottom up uh, from, from the teachers, say, or, or top-down, or whether there's a middle ground. And we have a large experience with open educational resources and hmm. the opportunities to both contextualize as well as identify what might be, I don't want to say best, but most appropriate resources. So I want you to think about some of those questions, and I'll, I'll come back to you. But I want to move the conversation um, over to Tinsley, because one of the products that was developed uh, in collaboration uh, with you, Krister, and the team was for the Syrian refugee crisis, an open source educational game supporting early grade reading and literacy called Feed the Monster. And I wonder, Tinsley, if you can just share with our audience a little bit about your organization that you co-founded, Curious Learning, and your experience specifically in developing and rolling out Feed the Monster in the case of Syria. Uh, Tinsley, welcome. Thank you. Curious Learning is a nonprofit that is focused kind of very simply on giving everyone the opportunity to learn to read. We do that by using the kind of growing ubiquity of mobile devices, smartphones, as a delivery mechanism. And uh, we grew out of a set of research that came from MIT and Tufts University and Georgia State University. Um, and uh, in the course of that research, we started to kind of learn and understand what kind of um, apps uh, were most engaging and, and more effective. And at the same time, there was this competition going on to produce an app for the Syrian refugee crisis. And the one of the clear leaders that came out of that was the Feed the Monster app. And we recognized it for, for how valuable it could be. And uh, one of the great, great things about it is it came out of that competition op as open source. And so we, we started investing in the process of localizing that to many different languages in an effort to see it, see it distributed and used uh, in many different places. And it's now kind of roughly in, you know, 50 plus languages and dialects and has been downloaded somewhere over a half a million times across about 90 countries. It was pretty much um, just luck that we had in the early days decided for a series of weird reasons to do um, a Ukrainian version and had it on hand when the crisis hit. What's really fun about that or exciting about that is that it allowed us to respond very quickly. So to give you an idea, for the last seven days, we've been running a social media kind of campaign to build awareness about it. And in the last seven days, we've had um, 16,000 downloads of that. that that's phenomenal. Um... I, I, I want to come back to you also on two aspects that you highlighted. One was engaging and one was effective and how you think about 
defining those two words. Because again, as I, as I said in my intro, this was one of the big lessons out of COVID was that when teacher, when students were outside of the classroom, uh, agency and uh, perseverance and being a self-starter were really important. And, and, and a key element to that was having engaging content uh, that students were able to um, mainly work at their, their own pace, but also to, to collaborate with others. But I want to come back to you, Krister, to, to dig into the initiative and the campaign that you're, you're, you're launching now in, in Ukraine. And I wonder if you can just share a bit about your plans, uh, how this uh, transpired, and, and how you are thinking about the logistics to kind of pull this together in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, so first of all, the idea of doing this campaign at a large scale is only uh, about a week old. So, And it started by me uh, uh, emailing a few of our partners, including you guys, um, and we got really rapid response. So from from last Wednesday to, to, to last Friday, we, we, uh, we gathered a really, really powerful group. We had UNESCO, UNICEF, we had you guys, we had UNHCR, uh, we had, of course, Tinsley and his team join in, and a few others, actually also a few, a few companies from our own country here in Norway. Uh, and the idea is pretty simple. We want to have a, a very substantial push towards one target group, and that is those who know English and Ukrainian. And we're also looking to have linguistics experts and translators be amongst those. Um, and so, so last week we sort of started prepping for it. Over the weekend, we wrote all the materials and we prepped our, our landing page and our, our, our system. And then on Monday, we launched it publicly. And we had sort of two plans going out of the gate. One was to get started with someone that's just started to, to work on our platform. Can explain a bit more how that works. And then sort of continuing to, to have partners join in uh, and, and, and keep helping to push um, push this message, uh, this message out. So, and what really shows the scale of, or the ability to scale here is that from the time we launched this idea publicly on Monday, it took only 48 hours uh, between that point and the time where we published our first 10 books on the platform, quality assured and ready. And of course that's just 10 books, but we have a pipeline now that has grown, uh, grown massively. So we are, as you mentioned, looking at a few hundred, somewhere between 200 and, and 500 titles. Um, are going to be translated over the next four to five weeks, which of course is a really, really rapid response if you compare it to anything else. And just planning and funding a normal campaign would take weeks and months. Um, and, and at the heart of this is the fact that we have content in our English portfolio, which we're using here to translate from, across 12 different providers. That's publishers, that's NGOs, that's companies. And to get this on the road, we don't have to negotiate new contracts at all with them, of course, to be able to translate. If that were the case, we would have <laughs> we we would have been forced to do that before even getting started. So the fact that we have open content and we have a few a few very very um, good set of of collections across, I think, six hundred and fifty English titles makes it possible for us to get started really quickly. We can, we can get started as we plan the, sort of the, the larger part of the campaign. Um, so that's, um, that's been, and, and the, the feedback has been tremendous here, not surprising. People are really engaged in, 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 in the Ukrainian crisis. And for us, this is just us wanting to give one small contribution. So we're not sort of, we're not looking up 
uh, upon ourselves as a sort of an, any any big player in this. We can provide uh, some children in Ukraine and, of course, in countries where, where Ukrainian children are coming. We can provide them with uh, reading books of high quality um, and we can do it pretty quickly. That's that's the idea. That is fantastic. Congratulations, uh, Krister, in pulling this together so so quickly. Um, one, one of the questions that I have is, is how did you choose those first 12 books? Um, what were some of the criteria? How do you define quality? What were some of the, the criteria that you used? And are, are these, are these, does the digital uh, global library with these materials both combine the, the actual content as well as the assessment uh, and the metrics? And have, have these books proven to either be more engaging, again, getting to the question I was asking Tinsley, or have proven metrics to improve phonics or comprehension or whichever of the, the learning metrics that, uh, that you're looking at. Um, and then another question after that is, is just how did you find the translators? What were the logistics of identifying these Ukrainian English speakers? Christian? Absolutely. Um, first of all, we have a quality assurance sort of framework that has been um, worked on for a few years as we've been developing the, the, the platform. That is sort of a, a work through structure that has been um, developed under uh, the Global Book Alliance, which is sort of the umbrella organization that we are part of. And that states very clearly what quality is for us in a, in a certain scope. Um, in addition to that, we've had, together with the app that Tinsley talked about, we've actually had uh, a, a World Bank study on the effectiveness of the combination of Feed the Monster and uh, the GDL, the Global Digital Library, uh, in use in 9,000 households in northern Nigeria. Um, and that World Bank study has proven it has it, it has effect even even uh, if if the children only only use it for a few weeks uh, so the combination of of a, a literacy app that really starts um, at the initial uh, sort of steps of learning letters and then scopes over to the global digital library where you actually read for pleasure or you read to to practice reading right so that's that's sort of the quality perspective of the content. And all our 600 titles on the Global Digital Library has been vetted towards uh, sort of up against that quality assurance criteria. Not all of the titles were used in the study in Nigeria. But what is really great here is that the translators themselves that are looking to translate into, um, uh, into a new language, like in this case, Ukraine, they choose the titles. So if they find a book engaging and think it might work for Ukrainian children, um, they picked that book. And to be honest, the way the first 10 books were selected was exactly that way. We, we engaged the translators and we asked them to find books that talked to them, that spoke to them, where they thought the books could, could make sense. And, and were these translators, were they, were they Ukrainian teachers or, or students? Or what's, give, give me a, a sense of a profile of what a typical translator uh, experiences. Yeah, so we have a combination of volunteers, and we have uh, a paid quality assurance consultant that is actually Ukrainian in in Bergen, Norway, uh, and then we have we have freelancers. And the great thing about the I think the four first titles, they were actually being produced on the Global Digital Library while we were thinking about planning for this. So they were actually they were finished and translated before the campaign started. So what we did there is we we. And that is a translator that we never have met. I've never talked to that person. 
but that person came onto the platform earlier uh, this month, translated the titles, and when we uh, ran it through proofreading and quality assurance, it really, really stuck. So we're trying to get in touch with that person now to engage and to, to you know, say thanks and maybe uh, have that person join us uh, further in, in, in the campaign. But that is the, the key of the platform uh, also. Anyone can go onto the platform and translate uh, and find books that, that they like. And, and what, what happens then is that you see, you see individuals that are engaged uh, move on their own behalf. And, and, and to be honest, that is the sort of, that's the way the first 10 books came, came to life. The five of those were picked by us and translated by um, a, a professional translator here. Um, and, then, and then we have a volunteer group that is just starting up uh, that is going to do the next, the next step. So uh, our pipeline looks sort of pretty scalable here. So by the, the end of next week, we will have something between 75 and 150 titles. And that's going to be two weeks after we started planning the campaign, which is, which is not too bad. But that would be a combination of volunteers and um, and uh, and um, uh, Ukrainians in Norway, and the third group is consultants, also personal consultants in Ukraine or in Poland. Ukrainians that have have, have moved to, to Poland, um, and we started out thinking about this as a volunteer only exercise, but we see there is so much value in also paying something, especially to those um, Ukrainians that are in Ukraine or in Poland, because they they need, of course, to to get paid for their 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 work, so it's going to be a combination of those of those three. But as we select the titles for the bigger push, that is a from the bottom uh, up approach where we start with the simple titles, uh, and we move our way up a very distinct list. It's actually a spreadsheet where we have selected a few titles that we know by experience work across cultures. So we have we have titles that we we think at least could could work also in Ukraine. That's fantastic. I, I want you to maybe, if you if you could also share with with our audience how how you've developed opportunities for the interoperability of this digital content. Is it designed for only one platform? Uh, can it be accessed over many different devices? Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that aspect of the design of this digital content. Yeah, uh, that's a really important question, which is really for us has been has been part of our foundation. So we produce all the content in what's called H5P, which is an is an HTML5 um, open format, meaning that it can be used across a multiple, very large number of platforms. And it can be used across platforms without any technical sort of um, resources doing the, the, the mapping of the resources from one platform to the other. Uh, and it's also accessible. Universal design is, is, is at the heart of, of, of those um, uh, content pieces that we're developing with H, um, H5P. So immediately when we are finished with the titles and they go live on our platform, our partners like Colibri, uh, a platform that is used across many, many countries, can draw it directly from our API. Uh, and also UNICEF, we had a meeting with them yesterday. They're doing uh, a platform with the Ukrainian government. Um, it's called Learning Passport in a collaboration with, with Microsoft. They are pulling content directly from our platform. And they can use it because our platform is, has, or our content has been developed what we call platform agnostic. We think our platform should be a platform for other platforms, meaning that everything we develop should be reusable not only for individuals and teachers, but also for other platforms that want to use what we have. So literally, if you wanted to have your team copy 
every piece of content on the GDL, you could do it within a few hours because our API is 100% open. Um, and the reason for us doing this is because we don't think of the global digital library as the platform that should carry all this. We think there are innovators around that will find new ways and different ways and better ways to, to reach children uh, with the content that we have provided. And one example of this is Google. We entered into a collaboration with them two years ago because they were doing a, a, an AI app for reading with voice recognition and that they had the whole sort of suite of elements from Google come in. And content on that app today, it's called Read Along, has content pieces from the global digital library. So even commercial vendors and commercial partners can use content coming from our platform. And I just want to say that the most astonishing thing for me, I was in South Africa five years ago when I spoke to a large number of, of user admissions. And I was just provided with some fantastic content from a project called BookDash. So I said while talking, I said, right now, I think this content is so good, it might be used in Norwegian schools. And everyone around laughed, you know, politely. But the fact is that last year, one of the largest content providers in Norway and, and school providers in Norway started using content from the Global Digital Library. And none of that content came from the US or Europe. They're all from either India, South Africa, or Kenya. So right now, that is, is a really, really fantastic side effect also of the, the Ukraine production that we're doing now. It will immediately, immediately be drawn into the Norwegian school system for the refugees that are coming to our country. No, that is, that is phenomenal. We have many examples of the importance of mother tongue and local language, as well as context in content. And this, these examples of the democratization of content, the contextualization of content, and the interoperability of content over any platform are super essential elements uh, to being able to provide effective learning through technology. Um, Tinsley, I, I want to pivot to you uh, to talk a bit about the logistics of once you have the digital content, how do you think about all of the other elements that are essential to uh, learning? How, how do you think about once you have the platform, for instance, is the integration into the curriculum? How do you think about the devices? How do you think about the teachers uh, if, if they need to be engaged and trained? And we touched a little bit on the cost. I wonder if you can share a little bit about your experience of implementing uh, open, interoperable digital content uh, in the case of Feed the Monster in Syria. And what are some of the lessons that would apply uh, to this case uh, in, in, in the Ukraine or with the Ukrainian refugees, Tinsley? Um. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll jump back to the comment you made earlier about this um, distinction between engagement and efficacy or learning happening. And, yes, um, you know, touch on that as a kind of entry into your other questions. Um, we've really kind of come to believe that, you know, it's particularly in situations where kids access to school is curtailed or um, uh, or you're trying to supplement a school system that is um, not very successful, that it's important that the content engage the the children, right? And that there's some um, self-driven desire to engage with the material. And so 
the quality of it being highly engaging became an important factor. You know, it was, you've got to get a kid excited about doing it before you can get them learning on it. Um, that's not enough, of course. It needs to actually have content that has learning impact as well. But it is kind of a first gate to getting kids um, on board. And so um, that plays in to, you know, the notion of, you know, of also how do you, how do you get it to kids, which I think is, uh, in essence, what you were asking about um, a minute ago. And there's, you know, many different potential channels that we find ourselves trying across many different countries across the world over the years, because it's it's one thing to have produced the piece of content, um, gone through the process of developing a localization process that engages native speakers to actually make versions of it in the languages that are needed so everybody can learn to read in their mother tongue. And all that's a big lift in and of itself that we've, you know, managed to uh, to move through at least for 50 languages, uh, 50 plus languages for this for this app. Um, but the, but then, you know, does that mean anything unless you can get it in the hands of the kids and get them using it? And you know, many of the kind of avenues that you you talked about are ones that we've explored. There are also new ones that aren't traditional, like what we're doing right now with the Ukrainian version of the app, which is promoting it on social media, right? And reaching directly to parents. And there's, this is a population where a large percentage of parents have a mobile device and will probably see that kind of, uh, you know, see that it's available and be inclined and able to put it on their device and make that device available to their child. The number of people that are in that situation is growing rapidly, even in countries where you, where we traditionally don't think that's possible. And so that's an avenue that I think is going to grow and expand over time, is that how do we kind of leverage that opportunity? But the great thing about making the apps the way, if they're engaging and uh, a high degree of efficacy, is that they can be used in that circumstance where a kid's out of school and you have and the only real way to reach them is directly through the parents. Or it could be used in concert with school or even in the classroom. And we have examples of places that are doing that as well. So we've done a number of studies in, in different parts of Africa where it, they have been used in, in classrooms. Apps have been used in classrooms there. And teachers make that part of the activities that happen throughout the week and make it available to, uh, to students to play with as a um, kind of supplement to the regular curricular activities. South Africa is an interesting example in that case because it was measured that out of the 100 roughly 180 uh, school days that only 40 of those days entail time when a kid is actually actively doing something themselves in a learning process, right, as opposed to just listening to the teacher speak. And the ability for them to have access to the app either in school or at home radically increases that amount of time. And has had, you know, in the communities we've studied and worked in, has had enormous impact on the learning trajectory as a result. I think this is uh, an incredibly important point. Uh, we've done a lot of um, uh, classroom observation studies, and in a forty-five minute classroom, so much time is is spent just taking attendance on getting kids to sit down on on management, and there is very little active learning. And the critical element of how do you augment a time on task is is critical. And getting back to the question around engagement, what do you see as some of the most engaging mechanics uh, in 
in the content you've produced, um, be it game mechanics or, or otherwise, that support this concept of attention, of time on task, of persistence uh, in learning? Well, certainly um, there's some of the ones you would expect that kind of pop up there in terms of um, some some simple but accessible game mechanics that keep keep kids engaged. Um, Feed the Monster itself has a character, which is this little monster that starts off as an egg and you actually are feeding it. And as you feed it the, the proper letters over time, <laughs> based on what's being asked for, um, it, it grows into your whole kind of pet. And so that that's a highly engaging, you know, activity for for kids of that age. Now, I will give a caveat, which is that there there's no lack of examples, even in our work. I've been I've been working in user interface and interaction design and game design, mostly for kids for several decades now. And I, I like to think I'm pretty good at it. But the reality is, is it's really hard to do this well for kids. It's really hard to put yourself in the mindset of a kid and to, and to get it right. So we do a lot of testing. And there's been numerous times when in our in our early work, we would take like 40, 50 apps and we put them on the device and we would have our own opinions about which ones were going to be engaging. And ones that we thought were absolutely boring and kids wouldn't want anything to do with were, were real winners because of the um, the agency it gave them and also because of the repetitive nature of it that was so important to them during that learning process. And for us, it would seem boring, but for them, it was spot on for what they needed. So there's I, I can't say that there's a there's a magic answer here. I can say that, you know, people with experience have decent instincts, but you can't trust them. You have to test everything with kids and look at the data. No, absolutely. What have you found uh, in terms of the kind of the, the research and, and how apps uh, can do things that face to face instruction cannot do? And, and what are things that having a parent read to their child uh, can do that uh, an app cannot do? Um, have, you, have you delved into that type of, of, of research and in, in kind of the design of, of your work? Sure. Um, let me. Try to speak that speak to that from a high level. Um, you and, know, and I guess just one other point I wanted to bring into that is is the the issue you raised about the importance of parents because I do think that de facto out of school youth and in hybrid learning parents are, are play an incredibly important role uh, in terms of the development of their their kids. And I wanted you to also just touch on the social campaign that you've had with with parents as kind of part of this equation on. What is quality engagement, both in terms of face-to-face -face, uh, and online? Okay, that's a that's a long list. I might forget one of them. You're gonna have to remind me if I miss it. I know. Um, I know. I'm, 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 I, you <laughs> okay. triggered more thoughts for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. No worries. Um, so, one of the things that apps does, you know, in the beginning of learning to read, you know, particularly when you're learning the sound symbol correspondence and phonemic awareness and all that stuff, there's a lot of kind of practice and repetition that has to happen. You have to kind of keep working at that and building it and it becomes second nature until it becomes second nature. And we all kind of forget how much time we spent doing it. You know, effectively learning to read is a kind of your full-time job for about three years if you're in a well-resourced school, right? Then we forget it because it's become so automatic for us. And so um, 
one of the things that you know apps and games are really good at is giving you a lot of time on task just repeating that and going through that kind of repetition and and learn and and practicing it over and over and over again right and it it does it in a way that's it's kind of unique you certainly a parent or teacher could do that if they don't go crazy repeating the same stuff all the time that could do it with a child and it's often been the case but um there's there's some magic too i believe in in the fact that the kid is activating their own curiosity about the subject and is also um acting with their own agency to move through the material right and that we all we all remember that we learn things more quickly when we engaged in the learning process as opposed to it was uh, put in front of us and we were kind of guided or even pulled through it. And so I, I think there's a power in that that is kind of unique to this medium that can be leveraged. That does not take the place of reading being something that society, your society and your surroundings values. Right. And, you know, this is this is tough because, you know, a lot of the languages that were that are spoken um, in in communities in countries where there are high illiteracy rates have almost no children's literature. And this is the importance of the GDL and getting it translated to so many different languages is that even even if a kid can get to the point where they know their letter sounds, there's nothing for them to read in their language. Right. And so it's that that role of the parent being there to not only encourage and promote the learning to encourage the value of it but parents working within a larger society to create you know a community of 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 readers and the value of it in that community is really important no these are i mean th- th- these are essential points of creating this uh, culture of learning uh, of 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 reading and and part of that culture is having culturally relevant uh, learning materials and I think the point you raised about apps ability to inspire curiosity and agency and and empower learners to take their own paths and the role of game mechanics also in in, in helping them to kind of take those additional steps. Uh, to, to deepen their learning, I think is essential. Um, Christopher, I want to I want to bring you back into the conversation on this issue of challenges. Uh, we see, I think, and we've talked about all of the potential opportunities, but implementation of ed tech, particularly at early grade, particularly to tackle this challenge of early grade reading, is a huge challenge. And I wonder if you can just share with us a little bit about some of the challenges that you have faced. And some of the challenges that you expect to face in the deployment of this campaign uh, in in Ukraine. There are a lot of challenges, and, and I think, first of all, uh, when we engage a large group like this, it's going to be a diverse group of people. Uh, so there's always a sort of process piece here that has challenges to it, uh, all depending on what kind of context and what kind of country. And of course, as 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 you've been talking about, reaching children where they are. Uh, at the point when they need these resources uh, is going to be a challenge because right now most of the of the of the refugees are moving uh, to uh, um, to a place uh, and they don't even know their destination so so just right now we're focusing on increasing the availability of the resources without ex- uh, actually knowing how many children 
um, will be will be needing it and where they are. To go back to what, what Tinsley talked about earlier in terms of using social media, that is going to be a key element here because in many cases, the child and the parent will be in a country where uh, the teachers don't even speak their language. And so, so really reaching out to them when they're on the move and when they are not uh, sort of uh, necessarily in school is going to be uh, going to be crucial. And I don't think we can reach them with traditional methods. We need to think creatively on, on how to use modern technologies. And for those of you or for those listeners who haven't sort of been part of setting up a campaign on a digital uh, social media platform, we can actually target people directly, both in terms of age, both in terms of where they are geographically very sort of accurately within a country or a, or a city. Uh, and we can also, um, at least to some extent, reach those that we know are in Poland, for instance, and speak Ukrainian or, or are from Ukraine. So it's, it, we can be very specific with how we set up the campaign to reach those, uh, those people, even though they're, in, they're not in the, their, their own home. But of course, this is, th these are challenges also because the 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 ground is sort of shifting or the, the landscape is shifting as we are <laughs> drawing the initial map here so it's um it's not easy and i think going back to the engagement part i think that's going to be important here because the children here are also sort of they're living through a crisis so also sort of having that game element having that engagement element as part of what we offer them is going to be even more important here than it has been uh, has been earlier on yeah, two 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 final questions for you, Krister. One is is the marketing and and reaching them where they are geographically, and the other is the assessment of where they are in their own ability to read. Um, how how do you think about um, this assessment piece? Uh, how, how do you think about the 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 data that's captured? Ideas around uh, adaptive uh, learning uh, and and those components of of reaching uh, the, the children that we want to uh, uh, to target with this initiative. Yeah, so this is a, re a really interesting question. And this is uh, something that we have been working on with Tinsley and his team and with their expertise over the last year, um, creating um, uh, adaptive learning components that would assess uh, the child's ability uh, or, or capabilities within one piece of the learning journey, or would put them at the right place to start to learn. Uh, this is an algorithm uh, in itself that's been developed by Tinsley. We have joined in and developed an H5P uh, element um, that sort of runs uh, the assessment piece. The importance here is that even though we're not super accurate or 100% accurate in just, uh, sort of assessing exactly what the child uh, is capable or not, we can pretty accurately put them in the right place in the landscape and present them with resources that are that are that are suitable uh, suitable for them within a certain scope. And that is, of course is 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 much much more accurate than just providing them with a URL, which would be the the, the global digital library or or feed the monster. Uh, but this is something we are working on right now uh, to get sort of harmonized and within uh, our our system. Um, and we're also working on. Um, on a, a badge-based model that sort of drives engagement over time, which we think is really important. But what we can say is that we are about to launch a simple adaptive component towards all our subjects within math, which comes live on the Global Digital Library uh, within the next three or four weeks, where we, for each topic, 
have an adaptive component that assesses whether you should stay on that subject or bring you to the next subject in the chain. That is the first piece of a, a adaptive assessment uh, technology that we uh, have developed. And that's also going to be carried uh, as an H5P, meaning others can can use that uh, on their own platforms uh, if they want. But that is a is a simple structure where we have a ladder of, of subjects across mathematics, early math. We have a game-based assessment, which is not presented as a test at all, but a, a simple game. And based on the results on that game, we would either uh, bring you to another resource uh, going a, a bit down, sort of a simpler resource, or we will bring you up a step in, uh, in the ladder. I want to come back to Tinsley for, for one final question, since you were integral in the development of this, this algorithm. One of the challenges we face with many um, commercial adaptive learning systems is, is, is digging into the black box and understanding what data is developed, what rules are applied to that data, and whether indeed it's, it's achieving the goal that it, it states that it achieves. How, how can you think about the future of uh, adaptive learning of open algorithms of of open data, while at the same time uh, inspiring providers to create new innovations uh, uh, in the space of adaptive learning. Let me step back and say that the kind of assessments that um, Christer was um, was referring to, you know, are early literacy assessments, and they they provide you know, they're, they're gamified and it's an activity a kid plays where they feel like they're playing a short game and it gives us some knowledge about what, uh, what skills they've, they've developed or how far they are in developing particular early literacy skills. And the value of that is twofold. One is, as you suggest, making a recommendation about what's the next things that might be in their learning trajectory. But it also is the mechanism by which we can do pre and post assessments to see if a piece of content has actually had a you know, desired impact, right? So it, it's, it, we're using them in both capacities. My personal opinion, this might be a little controversial, is that um, the personalized learning approach has real value, but we need to be careful about how regimented it is. Our experience in the field is that if we give kids a set of apps that are uh, in the ballpark of where they need to learn and give them the agency to select and play amongst those apps, that they'll find the one that's most highly engaging to them and they'll work with it for a long period of time and then leave it at some point as they kind of tap it out and move to another one on their own. And that that tends to be a more highly engaging situation than picking exactly the next, next thing that we think they should be doing. So um, our research is suggesting that there's a balance to be had there, that it's not about completely regimenting the experience, but sandboxing the experience to help them progress through the learning trajectory. No, I think this is a tension in, in all curriculas, is how do you create this agency um, without um, boxing in uh, the learners and the teachers as to what they have to deliver? The other thing, as you guys were talking, that I thought might be nice to share is when you were talking about social media, and I, I could give a very concrete example of what's been done in the last week by us, you know, um, That'd be great. For, for Ukraine. And the concrete example is during the first five days of us starting to test social media, we ran $20 a day worth of Facebook ads targeted towards the populations. And... Uh, after five days, $100, we had 
1,000, over 1,500 downloads directly attributed to clicking through the ad and a total downloads of 7,700 downloads, which were a byproduct of that information being shared on social media by parents to other parents. So what we're talking about in terms of cost effectiveness there is it, it basically cost us 1.3 cents per download to reach a parent. The power of recommendations is is probably the most important indicator of a quality learning material. If a parent or a teacher or a learner actually chooses that material, that's that's a pretty good sign. Tinsley, I wonder if you can, um, as we wind up this conversation, share with our audience um, uh, a book recommendation and uh, and a call to action. Uh, any book on the GDL. I encourage people to read it and see what they're like. <laughs> um, as for a call to action, um, you know, join the effort. You don't have to translate books to Ukrainian if you're uh, passionate about another language that needs representation of children's literature. Um, join join the translation effort on that. Um, there's a lot of work to do even beyond the crisis at hand that is most immediate. And the last second call to action would be just get the word out there. We need all the help we can get getting this in the hands of the kids who need it. Absolutely. Uh, Krista, how about yourself? Uh, any specific book? Because I imagine you'll also recommend the, the Digital Global Library, but any specific book that you have read over and over and you recommend to your your your, your friends, uh, as well as your call to action, Krista? Yeah, so so that's that's going to be, um, and I'm so sorry. This is this is this is not a political correct name for a book, but it's called Fat King Thin Dog. It's a tremendous book uh, created by Pratham Storyweaver in India that has been traveling across more than it's been translated to more more than 150 languages. Um, so uh, so that's going to be my 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 book recommendation from the Global Digital Library. Um, there's a there's a few of them that are my favorites, but that's my um that's my favorite uh, you asked about sort of the the podcast um um recommendation and uh i would i would encourage, uh, encourage people to uh, to listen to some of the last podcasts from uh, Ezra Klein at New York Times uh in the interest of Ukraine at least because there there is some really really uh, fine fine um uh sort of uh, conversations there with people that are experts on on Ukraine that might give a different view of the conflict um, than we usually get from 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 uh, the mainstream media. Fantastic! And, and your call to action: go out, find a book on the Global Digital Library, and translate it into Ukrainian or any other language that you desire it to be in. Uh, we are, of course, right now calling for Ukrainian translators to join the Global Digital Library. But if you don't know Ukrainian and you know another language in English, please join anyway. Love it. Awesome. Uh, Krister Tinsley, a huge congratulations for this initiative. Uh, very excited to uh, see the development of these 500 books or so over the next few weeks and learn more about uh, getting into the hands of, of, of learners uh, in the Ukrainian uh, refugee communities. Thanks so much for your, for your time and uh, uh, looking forward to our continued collaboration. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much.